0: Well, you know, you bring up a really, really important point in our history, and, and I, I really aggravates me when people talk about this being a democracy. You know we are not a democracy. We were never meant to be a democracy. Democracy is mob rule. A lynch mob is a democracy, where 50 people catch one guy and the vote is 50 to 1 in favor of lynching him. That's what a democracy is. And what we have, of course, in a constitutional republic is the rights of the individual are protected by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And that's what makes us free. That's what gives us our individual freedom. So when you talk about the framers putting all of these safeguards in there, that's exactly what they did, and that's why people today really need to understand that concept, that lynch mob mentality uh democracy is exactly that it is mob rule and that is not what this country is all about and that's why we have as you said uh the electoral college while we have requirements for changing the constitution because if it was just done by majority rule things would be in an uproar constantly in
1: this country In fact, uh, I don't remember who said it, but a nice pithy summary of uh, democracy is it's uh, two wolves and a sheep voting on who to have for dinner. So uh, that's uh, the risk that you run when you have pure pure majority uh, rule. So if we had not had the filibuster all along, uh, we would have a federal government that's a heck of a lot larger, even than today's uh, behemoth. Uh, But thanks to the filibuster, we have been able to. Uh, slow down the process. And I remember also the remarks by uh, Milton Friedman, the Nobel economist. He said, uh, I just shuddered what would happen to freedom in this country if the government were efficient. Uh, so the, the filibuster has been a valuable uh, protection for the rights of minorities. And my own view is that we would be better off if the filibuster were actually codified as part of the Constitution. It's not, of course. It's it's currently just simply a rule of the Senate. And that's why you see uh, what happened yesterday, is that rules can be set aside. But if filibuster were a part of the Constitution, it could not be simply set aside. And I would like to see a supermajority requirement uh, codified in the Constitution for things like uh, spending that ex- exceeds a, a reasonable cap uh, or uh, major tax increases, and also for the confirmation of federal judges. I mean, bear in mind that federal judges have lifetime tenure. And so we, we don't have term limits for federal judges. That would be another good idea in my view, but right now we don't have term limits. And until we have term limits, the limits for federal judges, I think uh, these folks who have lifetime tenure ought to be approved by uh, some supermajority, let's say 60 senators. Uh, but as a result of... Uh, Uh, Yesterday's actions, which, of course, was a response to to Harry Reid's earlier actions a few years ago, uh, we no longer
0: have uh, the filibuster for judicial nominations, nor for cabinet appointments. Well, just to to really emphasize this point, uh, if we were in the Old West, of course, and uh, a posse was sent out to catch uh, a bad guy of some kind, let's say a murderer or whatever, and 35 men rode out, and they eventually caught him. If this was a democracy, they would have lynched him on the spot. But because it's a constitutional republic, they are required to capture him, bring him into town, and according to the rule of law, he has to be judged by a jury of his peers before punishment is levied upon him. And that's the kind of safeguard we get by having a constitutional republic uh, rather than a democracy. We're talking with Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute, a constitutional scholar, and we're discussing uh, the filibuster and uh, the confirmation of uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, to fill Antonin Scalia's place on the Supreme Court. So let's talk about something very important, and that is the Constitution itself, originalism versus a living Constitution. Uh, let's discuss that. What is your view on that and explain both of those terms?
1: Um, the two um, most properties of, uh, of uh, constitutional interpretation are originalism, um, some people call it textualism, and the living Constitution. Um, of course, how the Constitution is interpreted is, is, is critically important. We have three justices who are going to be in their 80s, two of them already and, and one coming up, uh, during the current presidential term? Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Anthony Kennedy, Stephen Breyer. That's two liberals and one swing vote. And of course, Scalia uh, was just replaced by Gorsuch. So that means Trump is going to have a profound impact on the Supreme Court, and that means a profound impact on the nation. And that leads to this uh, vital question what? judicial philosophy should we be looking for in a justice uh, or put it differently what are the various theories of how to interpret the Constitution and which one's correct and that gets us to these two theories that you mentioned originalism or textualism and the living constitution now I think it's useful before um, talking about those particular theories to talk about two other terms that you you've probably heard and that are really mischaracterized um, you, you've heard a lot of conservative legal scholars suggest that the proper guidepost for uh, constitutional interpretation is original intent. And that's sometimes confused with originalism. Now, original intent is not the same as originalism, not the same as textualism. Scalia was. Thomas is. Gorsuch, the new justice, is a textualist. They rely less on the intent of the framers and more on on the original meaning of the text, that's what we mean by originalism—the original meaning of the text. So judges should attach primary importance to the words that are actually in the Constitution. And Scalia summed it up. He he wrote, "It is the law that governs, and not the intent of the lawgiver." Now the the uh, textualists interpret the Constitution in accordance with the meaning when the provisions were originally ratified, hence the name originalism, not the meaning derived from a modern reading of the text. But it's important to note that original meaning is not synonymous with original intent. Meaning focuses on the words of the text. Intent focuses on the values and the objectives of the drafters and the ratifiers. And the problem with applying intent, uh, applying intent if you wanted to, is that we don't know which drafters or ratifiers are authoritative. I mean, Madison and Hamilton, for example, they had um, wide disagreements about some very important parts of the Constitution. So, how do we resolve their their different views? And, in fact, we don't even have good records of the Constitutional Convention. The only records we have are those that Madison prepared. So, how can we determine the, the full intent of all of the uh, the framers? So, uh, again, it's textualism, or it's Uh, equivalent, originalism, not original intent. It's the original meaning of the words. You may also have heard another term, I think, misidentified with conservatives, and that is strict construction. And Scalia explained uh, the difference between strict construction and textualism uh, pretty uh, succinctly. He said, and this is a quote, I am not a strict constructionist, and nobody should, uh, nobody ought to be. A text should not be construed strictly, it should not be construed leniently, it should be construed reasonably, to contain all that it fairly means. So if you wanted to interpret the Constitution, which was written in 1787, ratified in 1789, what would be the very best tool that you had available for that purpose? It would be a contemporaneous dictionary, a dictionary that was available at the time, 1789, and that dictionary uh, would define the words not strictly and not loosely, but in accordance with what they actually meant uh, at the time of ratification. So that's what textualism is all about as distinguished from uh, uh, original intent and as distinguished from strict construction. Um, Now, as you say, the the opposite of textualism is this theory preferred preferred by a lot of liberals, and that's the so-called living constitution theory. And the uh, liberals... They want the Constitution to be interpreted in light of new circumstances. You know, sort of a, a uh, malleable document that we can adapt to uh, current societal demands. And Stephen Breyer, Justice Breyer on the Supreme Court, is the is the uh, major proponent of the living Constitution. And he describes it. Uh, and here's his quote: He says the Constitution is designed to provide a framework for government across the centuries a framework flexible enough to meet modern needs. And then he goes on to say our constitutional system requires, quote, structural flexibility sufficient to adapt substantive laws and institutions to rapidly changing social, economic, and technological conditions. So that, you know, sounds, I think, reasonable to you. It sounds reasonable to me. But the textualist response is, look, the framers provided an amendment process if you want structural flexibility. So if the Constitution needs to be updated, uh, if it needs to be uh, amended, occasionally that happens. It's happened 27 times uh, for our Constitution. Uh, the way to do it is by the process that's laid out in the Constitution itself, in Article 5. uh We don't simply take the piece of paper and pretend that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't mean what it says. Uh, so what's the purpose of having a written Constitution if we act as it so? It's just... Uh,
2: On you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin.
0: This is Dr. Dan. Obviously, if you're paying attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C., we've been hearing a lot about filibusters and the Senate and the approval and, and of, of a lot of different things going on and how government works. And my guest is Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute and a constitutional scholar. And we're going to discuss uh, some of the things that are going on in Washington in terms of uh, the Constitution, which is, of course, the law of the, the law of the land. So, Bob Levy, uh, thank you. You've been a guest on Freedom Forum Radio before, uh, much to the delight of our listeners because you're a fount of knowledge. So, Bob Levy, welcome again to Freedom Forum Radio.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
0: It's my pleasure, Bob. And and obviously, in the forefront of, of the news at this point is the filibuster, so I know you know a lot about this. I've read some of the uh, uh some of your writings about the filibuster. Let's start out by talking about the filibuster itself, how about its history, how it is used and uh and really whether it's constitutional or not. How does it fit into the great scheme of things in the Senate?
1: Well, it's been around for a long time since uh early 1800s, beginning in uh, 1917 uh, a cloture vote, that is, a vote to shut off debate, required a two-thirds supermajority. That was changed to 60 votes, and that's what it's been since 1975. Mostly, the filibuster has been used for legislation. It's only very recently that it's been used for presidential appointments, including uh, judicial nominations. Strom Thurmond, uh, the Democrat from South Carolina set the Senate record uh, back in 1957 for a civil rights uh, filibuster. It was a talkathon that lasted for about 24 hours, but the, <clears throat> the process changed very substantially nowadays. Senators don't have actually have to speak, so you're no longer going to see these mattresses lying around in the Senate chambers. Basically, all they do is they announce that they intend to prolong debate, that they intend to filibuster. They don't actually have to stand up there and talk for that long. And when they announce their intent, that triggers this uh, 60-vote cloture rule, by cloture uh, meaning the number of votes that it takes to shut off debate. So the problem comes uh, in this regard. Suppose the senators want to revise the 60-vote rule. Um, Ordinarily, rules can be revised by majority vote. But suppose that the vote on revising the 60-vote rule is itself filibustered. If that happens, according to the Senate rules, it takes two-thirds to break this secondary filibuster. How do you get around that? You get around that with this so-called nuclear option, and that's what we saw invoked uh... yesterday so if you like i can explain what the nuclear option is all about basically well, it has the result of restoring the default rule which says it only takes a majority to shut down the debate and then of course it only takes a majority to approve uh, the nominee which took place today when Senate, when neil gorsuch was in fact confirmed as the next supreme
0: court justice well let me ask you bob in terms of our founding fathers, uh, was there a purpose uh, in having a filibuster, or in in the early days of the Senate, was there a purpose in having a two-thirds rule in place at that time?
1: Yes. Uh, the Senate is supposed to be the more deliberative of the two houses. The House of Representatives is... Uh, strictly in accordance with population. It's closest to the people. <clears throat> the Senate originally was elected by the state legislatures. Now, of course, it's popularly elected. So it's, the Senate is a bit removed uh, from, the, uh, from the people and was considered to be the more deliberative body. And the filibuster basically was to slow down the whole mechanism and give the Senate time to cogitate on the business that it was uh, undertaking. Um, this was one more method by the early founders of our country to <clears throat> throw a few grains uh, of sand into the machinery of government, because essentially the framers were a little bit distrustful of does exist for legislation, but of course it could be changed in that respect as well. As soon as one of the parties decides they want to exercise the nuclear option for
0: legislation, uh, they might decide to do so. If in a day, of course, when people are constantly criticizing Congress for doing nothing, uh, you would still say, though, that actually, and I, when when Congress, the, the less Congress does, the safer we all are.
1: Yeah, we're all at risk when Congress is in session. <laughs> I think it's, that's a fair uh, that's a fair statement of uh, of the fact. Uh, you know, the, the framers knew that there was a real potential for tyrannical government that is, majorities can very quickly and easily take away the rights of uh, minorities. And of course, the framers, having realized that, took a lot of steps uh, to um, guard against uh, that. Uh, problem. Uh, For one thing, we, as you know, we're a republic, we're not a democracy. So a lot of things, it's not pure democracy. It's not pure majoritarianism, one man, uh, one vote. Um, So we have, for example, a two-thirds vote required to propose constitutional amendments, to override vetoes by the president, to approve treaties, to impeach the president, to expel uh, a congressman. And the filibuster's supermajority requirement, uh, even though it's undemocratic, uh, it also uh, slowed down the process, and that was precisely why we had it, because it was undemocratic. And we also have uh, lots of other things that are uh, undemocratic. Now, I use the the term undemocratic, meaning not straight one-man, one-vote, not straight majoritarianism. Uh, For example, we have... uh, limited uh, powers under the Constitution. So even if uh, 70% of the people think that the federal government uh, ought to be able to uh, uh, do certain things, there there are things that the Constitution says the federal government can't do, because it's not among uh, the enumerated powers of the federal government. Uh, We have the Bill of Rights, uh, so 80% of the people can decide that I can't exercise free speech. It doesn't matter. Uh, It's guaranteed that I can exercise free speech by the Constitution unless and until the Constitution. Uh, is amended. We have the Electoral College. You know, we, that's not one man, one vote. We have two senators from each state, which is not um, one man, uh, one vote. So th- there are lots of, uh, of, of safeguards that the framers built into the Constitution for very good reason because they wanted to guard against um, the tyranny of the majority.